We are continuing our uh, trek through Romans. Uh, if you haven't heard uh, last week's sermon, I encourage you to go back and listen to that on our podcast. Um, in Romans, Paul raises the alarm that a storm is coming. God's tree-bending, mountain-shaking wrath is going to be revealed against man's unrighteousness. And because of sin, all of us, all humanity, stand in the path of this dangerous storm. Where then can people go to find refuge? Now, there's two things that you can do when hearing that a torrential storm is heading your way. The first thing you can do is to do nothing. Might sound stupid, but it's an option. You can do nothing. You can stay put, hoping that the storm's intensity has been exaggerated or that it will somehow veer from you at the last minute. Most people who have lived through an F5 tornado or a Category 5 hurricane will tell you that staying put is quite the gamble, and it might cost you your life. The second thing that you can do, which is a little better than staying put, is to take refuge. However, as Paul will show in the text at hand, not just any refuge will do. Any potential refuge must be well-suited to withstand the storm. Otherwise, a person may be walking into a death trap, not a safe haven. For example, seeking shelter in a condemned building from an earthquake is not all that smart. Right? It's a refuge, but it's not a refuge. It's a death trap. To see the ground start to shake and you run into a building that says, condemned, <laughs> you're going to die, okay? It's not a suitable refuge. And so the question is, is having heard that the storm is coming, you've heard the storm warning, what shelter are you seeking refuge in? If it's the shelter of moralism, Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 shows that being a moral person will not withstand the winds and the rain of God's wrath. Moralism has serious cracks in its foundation that will cause the roof to cave in the moment the storm breaks. Now Paul turns to inspect the perceived shelter that religious devotion gives or offers. If moralism is an inadequate shelter, as we saw last week, being a good person or trying to be a good person, is not adequate shelter, then will, will religion provide any better refuge? What do you think we're going to hear today? Can religion provide refuge? I just want you to hear yourself say it, because you're going to be preached about, it's going to be preached, it's going to be proclaimed from here, but do you believe it? At the end of the day, you might say, yeah, 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 I get it. Religion's not enough to save. Do you actually believe that? My friends, a storm is coming. Have you taken refuge in the shanty of religion? Moralism. As Paul will show, religious devotion is no better and will, will not stand any better in the day of judgment. The storm will break, and just as the shelter of moralism will topple under the fury of God's wrathful storm, so also the shelter of religion, like a house made of sticks, will fall flat on your head. 
So, dear religious people, listen up. Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 29, is written for those of us, us, me included, who put our trust in our religiosity. This is seen in Paul's polemic against two things. Number one, a reliance on the law. And number two, a trust in circumcision. Now, for Jews in Paul's day, the assumption was that God's wrath was coming for all those who were anomia, right? Those that were without the law, namely the Gentiles. Those who had the law were the privileged people of God and should not be looped in with the lawless nations. They had the law. It was also the prevailing presumption that a man's circumcision was his ticket out of judgment. They actually believed that because they were circumcised, the circumcision would keep them from Gehenna, from going to hell. Surely God would not judge those who had received the external sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Now you might be laughing at this moment because you may be wondering what we have to gain on reading a text on the law and circumcision. In our 21st century context, not many of us are putting hopes in Old Testament laws or in circumcision. You might be wondering, this is, this is antiquated. This has nothing for me. However, I think if we did some inspection, we'd find out it's the same message just to different religious observances. Just because we may have a different religious practices than the Jews of Paul's day, the tendency to trust in religious devotion and fervor as a means of escaping God's judgment still exists today. Our religious acts may include church attendance. You're here. There's a refuge, right? It may include Christian affiliations, voting for Christians, reading the Bible, tithing, baptism, being a leader in the church. It might even include your right doctrinal views. You have the right view of eschatology, and therefore you're right with God. I once had a family member who, when asked about her faith, ran to the other room and brought out her baptism certificate, claiming that all was in order. All's well. I had another friend who told me, uh, who cited his, his church attendance. He hadn't missed a Sunday since the day he was born as proof that all was right in the world. The point is, is that as sinfully blind humans as we are, we have the sad tendency to attach ourselves to things other than Jesus in hopes of accumulating supplemental insurance. Have you, have you guys ever talked with an insurance salesman about supplemental insurance? Oh my goodness. I start to realize that my life insurance is enough. My, that my identity theft insurance is not enough. Now I need assurance in case I step on a nail and get some kind of rust disease that's never been heard of. The insurance that I've been given is just not enough. I need more. My friends, we, we tend to attach ourselves saying, yeah, 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 we have Jesus. We're not going to deny that Jesus is important to escape judgment. But on the other hand, we're also going to buy into all these supplemental insurances. My church attendance. It's not just Jesus that gets me out of hell. It's the fact that I believe in Jesus and I go to church. Jesus plus all my supplemental insurance. My friends, the irony of that is that it shows you don't have real faith in Jesus in the first place. You've got two feet in, a re in two different refuges. 
you're still going to die in the storm. There's only one refuge that can hold out. As you read Romans 2, you might be tempted to think, well, I don't rely on the law. I, you know, don't think anything about circumcision. Therefore, what does it have to do with me? And my friends, I'm, I'm just here telling you, you might not be putting your hopes in circumcision, but if you think your tithes, your gifts, your church affiliations, your voting record, or whatever it is will protect you from the storm, this is your wake-up call. As will be shown, if Paul can tell the Jews that Mosaic law and the primary covenantal sign of circumcision will not rescue a person from judgment, then what other religious observance could possibly save you? The answer is clear, right? Nothing. Religion is simply not a suitable refuge from the wrath that's to come. You must seek shelter elsewhere. If we're going to evaluate where we're finding rest in, in days like this, where everything's uncertain and shaking, friends, there's an earthquake. Where are you taking refuge? Moralism, it will fail you, especially in these days. Religion will topple on top of you. Where are you seeking refuge? Don't seek it in those shelters. They're cracked. They're broken. They're going to fall. It must be in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Sola Christus. Only Christ. That's what we believe as gospel-centered Christians, that we have no other refuge And we need no other refuge. Don't sell us supplemental insurance. We have all we need in Christ. Paul begins his evaluation of the law as a refuge in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, according to Paul, who is judgment coming for? The short answer is everyone. Right? Everyone, Gentiles who have no law will perish without the law. Why? Because they're sinners, right? They've broken God's law. God shows no partiality. Therefore, guess who else gets judged? Jews. And how do they get judged? Under the law. Why? Because they're, say it, sinners. Who gets judged? Sinners. Not the irreligious. The irreligious Gentiles perish without the law, and the religious Jews are judged under the law. God doesn't judge irreligious or religious, God judges sin. Very clear in Paul's letter here. Paul's confronting this basic idea that we still struggle with today. That proximity to good and godly things equals security. Proximity to good and godly things equals security. In the ancient Jewish mind, having the Torah, the law, meant having confidence that they were indeed God's people. In other words, the fact that God chose Jews to receive his commands was a sign of special favor and blessing. Therefore, they were safe from any condemnation. If you look at their attitude in the Old Testament... All the judgment to come is for other nations, not for them. It was a shock to hear that any judgment was reserved for them. 
And it's the same mindset that the prophets attack in the Old Testament. For example, whenever the prophets preached that about the coming judgment that was to come in Jerusalem, many believed they were making empty threats. Jerusalem's going to die? Really? No, no, no. You don't understand, Jeremiah. The temple's here. We have the temple. God wouldn't destroy his own house now, would he? And because we live in Jerusalem and God's temple is in Jerusalem, Jerusalem's safe. It's at that moment, Jeremiah says in chapter seven, that God will destroy his own house because he is just holy and wrathful against sin. He tells the Jews that he will take that little valley of Hinnom that surrounds Jerusalem and he'll make it a valley of slaughter. Being ethnically close to Abraham's children, being in proximity in the shadow of the temple will not save from judgment. Babylonians are going to come and slaughter anyway. Proximity can't save. My friends, I wonder if you have that same proximity fallacy today. Being close to the church, being having a Bible. I mean, it sits on their nightstand, right? So because you aren't like the Gideons who put it in the nightstand, you leave it on top. So you surely are safe from judgment. You came to church today. There's lots of people that don't go to church. So surely that helps you. you your name is on a membership roster where you have no idea, but it's there. You have close associations with Christians. You would never dream of buying coffee anywhere else than White Rhino Coffee Shop because it's the Christian place. And chicken? Chick-fil-A. <laughs> You're good. Would God judge someone who, whose chicken is even a Christian? Surely not. You see, my friends, we've got this fallacy that proximity equals security. And Paul obliterates that. Shop at Chick-fil-A all you want. It doesn't save. White Rhino coffee doesn't sanctify. Coming to church and passing through the doors doesn't mean judgment passes over you. You see, my friends, there's only one thing we can really take trust in. And it's not religion. Paul says judgment is coming for sinners. For it is not the hearers of the law, not just the religious, who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. That's an interesting thing for a grace guy to say. That it is those who do the law that are justified. Simply being a recipient of God's commands, hearing this sermon, and you may be like, oh yeah, I put through, I put my 45 minutes in, and some of you are like 50, um, every single Sunday, and I listen, and I put it in, I should be good, right? No, it's not the hearers, it's the doers. God is unwaveringly just unmitigatingly just. He does not take things at face value. We do. He doesn't. 
As Paul says in verse 6, God will render to each one according to his works. Those who disobey his commands are guilty of rebellion and will receive the just consequences of sin. So at the end of the day, it's not, have you done this, this, and this? At the end of the day, it's, have I sinned against God, rejected his commands in whatever capacity or not? Now, if I were to ask you that, have you broken God's commands? Have you ever, ever transgressed on God's commands? Who do you think Romans says judgment's coming for? We may think it's coming for LGBTQ flags, but it's coming for you because you are a sinner, just like it's coming for them. In other words, anything short of perfect obedience is found wanting in God's standard. Now, are you ready to claim that you have that? I mean, if you have been perfectly obedient and you've always done what God has told you to do, you're good. Don't worry about a refuge. You're just fine. Stay put. You ready to gamble? To support his emphasis on the obedience of God's command, Paul gives a hypothetical scenario. He writes, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And this Paul shows that even a Gentile can lead a somewhat ethical or virtuous life, can't they? In other words, Jews don't have a corner on morality and on good behavior. Gentiles, likewise, can have an internal system of right and wrong. My friends, I've had the pleasure of getting to live in other countries. I can tell you there are standards in China that there's a wrong way to end somebody's life. They're not Jews. Most of the Chinese government has not even picked up a Bible. It's illegal for them to do so. And yet, there's still a wrong way to sleep with somebody else's wife. There's still a system of adultery and theft. They have prison cells where they throw people who steal from the street in it. They have some sort of internal morality. Now, is it perfect? Absolutely not. It kind of has a scale. But the reality is, is that God in his common grace has given even Gentiles like us some sort of internal moral compass. If you think that we have the best behavior as Christians, my friends, there are lost neighbors that don't know Jesus whose morality probably exceeds yours. I have a lost friend that cannot even fathom looking at pornography. Doesn't believe in Jesus. That's terrible. People would do that? I'm like, wow. Can you come speak at our men's ministry? Like, his morality is great, impeccable. Doesn't have Jesus. But he has this moral compass of what's right and wrong on the inside. You see, having insights into the commands of God does not make a person faithful. 
A person living by a moral compass makes decisions that will either accuse or excuse them from certain sins on judgment day. Now, what Paul is not saying, of course, is that anyone will be ultimately excused. He's already said in Romans 1.20 that they, the Gentiles, have no excuse, right? But they will be excused from certain things. Like there will be Gentiles on the last day who might say, I never cheated on my wife. They may offer that as, look, I was good. Yeah, that, that's, that may be true. They didn't cheat on their wife. They're excused in that sense. Still guilty of rejecting Jesus. Still guilty of sin in its various forms. But what Paul is saying is that Gentiles at times, people who have no access to God's law, can at times follow the precepts of God just because of God's common grace, a thing they call a conscience. Even someone who has never read the scriptures can understand It's wrong to cheat on your spouse. It's wrong to steal from your company. It's wrong to murder your neighbor. These things are not unique to people who have God's law. And then he adds to his hypothetical scenario, saying that a person may call himself a Jew, rely on the law, say they boast in God, know the will of God, and verbally approve what is right. As a Jew, they may affirm their role as a guide to the blind. They're a light in the dark, an instructor to the foolish, They're a teacher of children, and they have close contact to knowledge of truth in the law. But then comes the question, you then who teach others, do you teach yourselves? You acknowledge all these things as wrong and bad, but how's your own application? He gives examples of preaching against stealing and then stealing, saying that one does not commit adultery, but then committing adultery abhorring idols, but then robbing temples. This may seem like a ridiculous hypothetical, but if we think back in in recent years, it's not all that uncommon to see preachers, pastors, preach against immorality, and then come out with all kinds of scandals, all kinds of secret sins, brokenness. I mean, the list is long. Pastors who stand behind pulpits just like this and say, Immorality is wrong and wicked. Man, they preach flaming hot sermons against the sexually immoral, and all the while they've got something going on in their own lives. They teach but don't apply. How many church leaders and long-term church members have fallen prey to all kinds of idolatry while we're pointing at the idolatry of the nations? Some of us would walk by a Buddhist temple and see the, these people praying to an idol, and we go, oh, how dare they? While we are bowing down to idols that are political, economic, entertainment, and physical image, we have idols ourselves. Our idols might be the mirror, our idols might be the television, our, our idols might be any kind of other thing. We preach against idols, but we have idols. So we're guilty. The result of such hypocrisy, Paul says, is that God is dishonored. That we dishonor the Lord. He quotes Isaiah 25 and possibly merges it with Ezekiel 36, 22. For as it is written, the, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Very simply, hypocrisy among God's people leads to blasphemy among the nations. 
My friends, in, in preaching the last two sermons, this sermon and the last one, my goal is that we will not stop talking about sin of our nation and sin that, uh, that we see politicized. My goal is that you will begin to talk about your, same, your own sin in the same light, in the same way. I'm all for us talking about sin. I'm all for us proclaiming about the justice of God coming on the immoral. As long as you realize that you're the immoral looped in on that as well. You're the sinner as well. It's the they and us rather than that we deserve that I have a problem with as a pastor. We deserve judgment, not they, we. We deserve the same hell that Putin deserves, to be quite frank about it, don't, don't we? What distinguishes someone between a dictator who kills lots of other people and you? Nothing but Jesus. Nothing but grace. You're a little dictator in your own right. You live your whole life claiming to be your own emperor, deciding for yourself what is right and wrong. You invade on God's territory every single day. You invade other people's bedrooms by lusting after their spouse. You invade other people's blessings by being envious over what God has given them. You deserve judgment. It's only the grace of God in Christ that you don't get it. That's the gospel. If we don't speak like that, then we're being hypocrites. And if we're being hypocrites, then we're being blasphemous. My friends, you want to know, in my um, experience with non-believers, the number one reason why people tell me they don't go to church it's really, I, I live the same life you do. I go to the grocery store sometimes and I get it wrong. So I don't go often, but if Rachel gives me a detailed list that has the aisle numbers that written by the side, then I'll go to the grocery store. <laughs> I have meetings at Starbucks from time to time. I go to a gym. Um, I went to the gym this morning, Dale. So just so you know, um, I have the same life you do. I meet non-believers, and it's, it's kind of funny. When people ask me what I do, I struggle with that sometimes. I, how do you answer? Well, you know, I'm a pastor. And then suddenly these lost people are like, oh. And you start getting into this conversation, like my friend Jesse. Uh, one of the reasons they don't go to church sometimes, you want to know why? Because of hypocrites. I don't need that, Jesus. Look at their lives. I live just as good as they do. I hear their talk. I hear, I hear the way that they, they, they gripe and moan and grumble and hate other people and talk about how they wish certain people were dead. Jesse doesn't do that. Javar would never do that. Lost though he be, he's one of the most loving guys I know. My friends, what a sad tragedy that when we don't look at ourselves and consider the grace, the sin and the judgment that we deserve and the grace that we've been given in Jesus, the fact that the nations would blaspheme the name of God actually say that they don't need him. 
because they live the same life as us. That just breaks me to think of that about myself. That in my hypocrisy and my condemning other people and refusing to loop myself in that same deserved damnation, that others would think they don't need Jesus. My prayers is that you and I will speak in such a way that we loop ourselves into that deserved judgment and say it's only because of the blood of Christ. You realize what people will hear then? People will see you as someone that's humble. People will see you as someone that has clear insight into sin. You want to know why? Because you see it in your own life. A blind person can see it far off. That's farsighted. But it's still a vision impairment to not be able to see near. 2020 eyesight sees sins both far away and near. There's a lot of far-sighted Christians that see other people's sins. But to have the vision of God means that you see your sin. That my pride is something to lament. Just as Putin's arrogance is something to lament. I, I just want to go on record that I'm probably the first Texan pastor that just told his congregation they're all like Putin. The reality is, guys, that none of us, none of us have an excuse, do we? Isn't that what Paul says? They have no excuse. You, O man, have no excuse. In summary, having the law does not safeguard a person from judgment, especially if that person has broken God's law through sin. Relying on the law, relying on your observance of all God's commands will only lead to devastating disappointment on the last day because proximity to God's commands, being close to and even hearers of, cannot save you. You realize that? Just hearing this message cannot save you. If relying on the law cannot ensure a religiously observant Jew against God's justice, then what about circumcision? Circumcision was not a small practice in the Jewish faith. All of you parents be, I, I don't have any models. I don't have any, you know, anything to show. So just so you guys know, it'll be PG. It was no small practice in those days. It was perhaps one of the most important practices that delineated a person as being a member of the covenant community. In Genesis 17, God gave circumcision as a sign that Abraham and his family were his chosen people. In fact, it was so serious that those who refused to be circumcised were cut off from God's people in the Old Testament. Whoever didn't receive it, they were for sure not God's people. However, I think we would be wrong if we think that circumcision was ever only an outward observance only ever something that somebody did. It was never intended to be that. You realize that all the things God gave in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, but none of those things in the Old Testament were meant just to be external. Making sacrifices was never intended just to be about this motion. 
It was meant to point to an internal reality that they have trusted in God for a sacrifice to take away their sin. In fact, God gets to a point that he hates the sacrifices because they've made them nothing but outward rituals. He hates their new moon festivals. He hates their diets. He hates their, all these different things that they do. He hates them. Even comes down to a point where he hates their circumcision because they think it's because of circumcision that they're not in hell. But when God gave it from the very beginning, it was never an external, a merely external sign. It was meant to be an internal reality. God told Abraham before he even said the word circumcision, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between you and me and multiply you greatly. From the beginning, even the external sign of the covenant, circumcision, was dependent on a person being in an obedient relationship to God. It was founded not on just doing it, but on obeying God from one's heart, from obeying God's commands with a willingness to obey and serve. Paul says that the irony of circumcision is that without obedience, it's virtually useless. He writes, for circumcision is indeed a value. Yeah, your circumcision is great if you obey the law. There's the qualification. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes or is considered uncircumcision. In other words, your one and only external proof that you are one of God's people actually proves that you are not without obedience. Without obedience, a religiously observant Jew becomes like a Gentile. Paul escalates his indictment saying that an uncircumcised man who who keeps the precepts of the law will be counted as someone who is circumcised. An uncircumcised man counted as if he's circumcised because he obeyed the law, though uncircumcised. And then not only that, man, Paul just steps on all kinds of social toes in this. Not only will he be considered circumcised, but he will raise up in judgment against the circumcised Jews. Crazy that an uncircumcised Gentile who obeys the commands of God would raise up in judgment against a circumcised Jew who doesn't? Have you ever thought that on the last day there's going to be atheists, hard-hearted atheists that would say, well, I never did that. That's what Paul's saying here. Hard-hearted atheists could stand up and say, well, I don't even do that. Paul, Paul makes that point in 1 Corinthians 5 with the Christian who's sleeping with his mother-in-law. Not even the Gentiles do that. Circumcisions have no value if there's not obedience. And again, we can follow Paul's logic and apply it to the religious observance in our own day. If the old covenant sign of circumcision does not guarantee a right status before God, then neither does the new covenant sign of baptism. Baptism's great. I love doing it. I love it when the water heater works. But it's great. But it's never been about the water. 
The, the fact of the baptism is the baptism is an external sign of an internal reality. Just like my wedding ring, right? My wedding ring is not my marriage. My wedding ring is my wife's message to all of you young ladies. Back the heck off. I'm taken. <laughs> I take off the wedding ring. Does it change anything? No, I am a married man. External sign, internal reality. That's what circumcision was meant to be. That's what baptism was meant to be. It's not just about this outward religious devotion, baptism, church going, being on the membership role, being on the membership role. Again, just an external sign that there are other Christians that say, yeah, we think you believe in Jesus. But if you don't trust in Jesus, our affirmation of that means nothing. Because we don't see what God sees. The Old Testament says, man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. In our own life as a church, how often have we seen people who on face value looked holy, and then in our revelation of who they actually were, were totally different? My friends, what we've experienced as a church in that light is what's happening to all of us on the last day. That's going to happen with everybody. The real is going to be seen. Now, while modern religion, this isn't from scripture, while modern religion has created this category of nominal devotion, nominal Christianity, nominal membership in God's people, you won't find that category in scripture. Paul's final words in this section obliterate nominality, nominal religious devotion. Just calling yourself a Christian doesn't work. For no one is a Jew who is one inwardly, who is merely one outwardly. You can substitute Jew for Christian there if you want. For no one is a Jew or Christian who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul highlights the difference between superficial devotion and a real, true relationship with God. He uses these contrasting metaphors of inward and outward, right? Uh, the Greek word for inward implies secret, hidden, unseen, okay, kruptos, okay? In other words, it's this internal hidden reality that nobody else sees. In other words, being a member of God's covenant community is not based on what is seen. It's based on what is hidden. It's the reality of what lies beneath the surface where you and the Lord know. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. I can't see your heart. Neither can any of the sweet people in this room see your heart. You can fool us. You can look. I can, I can present whatever image of Justin I want. And you may not ever see the truth. But God does. His eyes reach beyond human observation. His eyes get beneath the skin 
His eyes see beyond all the external appearance that brings this massive applause. Wow, you are good. You are godly. God sees through to see what's real. Thank you. Somebody's clapping with me. God sees the hidden heart. It is before him who stands, right? There's an old Reformation phrase, quorum Deo, before the face of God. My friends, do you realize that you don't stay? And on the last day, no one else will be able to commend you in your righteousness. Nobody else will be able to give a character reference or a referral for you. God sees the heart. God sees the secret, the hidden. And so, where do we go from here? Well, Paul has just systematically undermined our reliance on the law and reliance on, the, on religious observances like circumcision. And, these, and then he's emphasized the importance of an in, inward, secret relationship with God highlighting the heart and the work of the Spirit. Now, ultimately, all this goes back. You're going to have to flip back now to what Paul says in verse 16 when he describes the judgment to come. When according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The word secrets there is the same. Kruptos, right? Who judges secrets? Jesus does. One is a part of God's covenant community. How? In secret. Kruptos. So who sees his people? Jesus does. He doesn't just see Grace Church and its member roster. He sees his people at this moment. He differentiates his people at this moment. He sees through to the heart. It is Christ who sees all that is hidden in man's heart. He sees the secret realities. Paul's view of Jesus is that all history is moving toward him. You look at the book of Acts, Acts 10.42, Jesus is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. Acts 17.31, Paul says that Jesus has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Who do you think that man is? Jesus. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It's an essential point of the gospel that we believe all history is reaching its telos when every single person's heart is laid bare before the king. The king whose eyes see all. My friends, can I just tell you something? It's better to be transparent and real now in your confession as a sinner because Jesus already knows that you are. Who cares what your neighbor thinks about you? Who cares if your, your image stays together in the eyes of everybody else? Jesus doesn't look at images. He sees the reality. He sees through the mask. He, through, he sees through the skin. He sees you as you are. His judgment reaches to the most devastating level. So what then? His judgment reaches at the devastating level, but his grace reaches you in your deep, deep, deep depravity. 
My friends, I know all of you right now at this moment have secret thoughts, secret things, secret hopes. You've got this image. You came to church wearing this image. You would be mortified if anybody ever saw beyond that image. My friends, there is goodness and grace and love in Jesus. Your mess doesn't work with him. Take it off. Trust him. Your religious fervor, your thought of everybody will look at my religious robe. No, he sees beyond it and he wants to give you real clothing that he's bought. Your religious rags won't do. He sees you and he loves you. He wants to give grace to you. My friends, Acting and being a good person will not save you on the last day. Coming to church and being a religious person will not, be, will not save you on the last day. Trusting in Christ and Christ alone saves you. So what then do you do? Get out of the old shanties. Get out of the wood, the, the wood and the hay and run to the brick refuge of Jesus. Trust in him. Elders, if you're in here, uh, sabbatical elders, even, even if you guys can go to the back and be ready to pray for people, we would just want to give you a chance to pray. We know that uh, there is a lot on your minds and hearts. There's a lot of fears and anxieties uh, with people. And so we just want to give you a chance to um, open up that heart for people and receive prayer. If you want to know more about this gospel, any of these elders that are in the back would be happy to uh, help you understand more about what the gospel means. But at the end of the day, whether you do it now or later, the, the reality is, is the appointed day is coming. King Jesus will reign. His eyes sees through all the stuff that you put forward. Be in a relationship with him now. Know him. See him. Love him. Trust him. There is goodness and mercy and grace in King Jesus. Find refuge in him. Let's pray. Father God, I pray against our, uh, our capacity and tendency to be religious people and moral people. Father, it's a good thing to have good morals. It's a good thing to even be religious observants. And yet, Father, those things on their own cannot save. So God, I pray, Lord, that if you must, let our shelters topple. Let us feel the quaking and the shaking of the earth right now as we hear booms in Eastern Europe of bombs and people dying and all these different things, Father. God, I pray that you will remind us that there's refuge in only one place. And that's in Christ. So, Father, I pray at the end of the day, you will help us remember that Christ is coming back. When we see him, all truth will be revealed. Mask will come off. And for those who trust him, when they see him, they will become like him. We love you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.